Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Good evening and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Pro-life groups are tonight vowing to fight proposed new laws which would legalise abortion. The government revealed its long-awaited legislation today. Andrew Little is here to tell us why abortion should be treated as a health issue, not a crime. And we've got reaction from both sides of this contentious debate. I'm really happy that we've gotten this far. Our first reaction is it's a very dark day. Then the big four Australian banks are pushing back against our Reserve Bank's plan for them to hold more capital in New Zealand. I've got the first interview with Shane Jones since his meeting with Shane Elliott, the head of ANZ in Melbourne. I think that the Aussie banks have become very, very addicted to super profits out of New Zealand and we want some more insurance, we want a greater level of assurance and uh, Shane said to me, hey mate, someone's going to have to pay for this. That interview shortly, but we begin with the government's plan to reform abortion laws. Despite the fact there are around 13,000 abortions every year in Aotearoa, terminating a pregnancy sits under the Crimes Act. If the law passes, not only will abortion be legal, but women will be able to make the choice for themselves, up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. It'll be a massive shift in the law and a conscience vote for our MPs. Justice Minister Andrew Little is with us this evening. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Why did you decide upon this option? Uh, we had the objective of, of shifting the whole abortion issue from the criminal framework to a health framework, um, but we needed a law that we you know, uh, give ourselves the best chance of getting through Parliament. So we got the Law Commission report. Um, I had said from the outset I thought that option C pretty much struck the right kind of uh, approach, um, but we left the gestational threshold at 20 weeks as opposed to the Law Commission's recommended 22 weeks. Um, but it achieves the objective that we want and I'm confident that it will mean we'll, we've got the best chance mm. of getting the best support across Parliament. Why not 22 weeks? Was that a New Zealand first concession? When you look at... Uh, look, there are a lot of issues came up in, in the discussions across all parties, including uh, opposition MPs as well. In the end, um, look, when you look at the statistics... 98% uh, of abortions mm. happen in the period up to 16 weeks, a very small fraction, up to 20 weeks. And then last year of the um, uh, 13,200 odd abortions mm. that were uh, carried out, 57 happened uh, after 20 weeks. So it's a very, kind of, very few. But, but is that a New Zealand first concession? <coughs> uh, were they the ones who were concerned about that 22 week threshold that the Law Commission recommended? Look, there were a lot of. Uh, look, it, it didn't come from one party alone or one you know, MP alone. It was an issue that came up in discussion and there was a legitimate question. Even though the Law Commission had recommended 22 weeks, why, when we have a threshold of 20 weeks, and why, when you look at uh, when in the term of pregnancies of New Zealand women abortions are taking place, why, why change what we've got at the moment? People know 20 weeks. Uh, people generally are comfortable with 20 weeks. It seems to work, so we left it at that. National MP Chris Pink says the changes mean you are, quote, liberalising abortion right up to birth. Is he right? No, that, that's an absurd sort of statement that gets made by the, the fanatic anti-abortion people. Um, there's no such thing as abortion right up to birth. Um, you know, a fetus that leaves the womb at birth is, is called a birth, uh, so let's get that right. The reality is when you look at when abortions happen uh, for New Zealand women, uh, the bulk of them happen in... That up, up to 16 weeks. Actually, 90% right, right. happen in the first trimester. The, so the, the vast majority of pregnancies are after 22 weeks mm. are on, on medical grounds. They're described as being crisis pregnancies. Very extreme circumstances. But, but what, are, what are, if, hypothetically speaking, a woman was to go to her doctor 
after 22 weeks with no medical complications and say, I don't want to have this baby, I want to have an abortion, and the doctor agrees, is there anything to stop that from happening? Well, the, the health professional carrying out the abortion will have an ob obligation to be satisfied that the abortion is appropriate given mm. uh, the woman's uh, physical and mental health as well as her well-being. But that's one doctor. So, that, okay. so that's different to the previous law where you needed two medical professionals, right? I'm just, I'm just yeah, getting into yeah, the detail yeah, that, of that. That's correct, yes. So, so purely hypothetically, <coughs> and I appreciate that you say the, the, the circumstance would be extremely uncommon, mm. if a woman were to go to a doctor after 22 weeks and say, I want an abortion, and the doctor was to say yes, there is nothing to stop that from happening. Um, well, except that the health professional is subject to that, that statutory obligation. Mm. And I look, I look, we, can, we can have all these arguments at the margins, um, but the reality is those sorts of arguments come down to one proposition, and that the reason they get put up is they come from people who really don't trust women to make a decision. The reality is right now, um, women are making that decision. They have to go through a lot of hoops to do so, and they are stigmatised by knowing that what they're doing is, in the first instance, a crime. And that should not be the case. Many other jurisdictions around the world are abandoning that framework and are putting in place sensible, responsible regimes to deal with this issue. Just, again though, just getting into the detail of the law, under the law, as you have proposed, how late can an abortion go? Well, un under the law at the moment, you can have an abortion after, mm -hmm. after 20 weeks. Um, but there is a statutory threshold that, that applies. Mm. But when you look at it, the reality is, uh, once you get to 20 weeks, you are dealing with very, very small mm. numbers of women and, and you're dealing with pregnancies that are hugely troubled, that is either compromising uh, the woman's health or, comp or the fetus's health is deeply compromised. So, so if that the is bulk the... of abortions happen in the first trimester and with another 8% or so up to 16 so, weeks. So if that is the case, if, if the women <coughs> who are, are choosing to have abortions after 20 weeks on medical grounds or because of a poor diagnosis for, for the baby or for the fetus, isn't it cruel to put them through another legal hoop through which they have to jump in order to, to access an abortion? If, if these women are going through a traumatic experience as it is, mm. a particularly traumatic experience given how far they are through the pregnancy, isn't that unfair? Um, well, what, what, what the figures tell us right now is that at, at the point of 20 weeks, it is very rare and they are very extreme circumstances in which, which a woman is Which is all the more reason, all the more reason for, for... So why are we making those women jump through an extra hoop? Uh, well, they go to they go to um, they can either go to the GP or they can self-refer to a health professional who carries out abortions. That health professional is subject to the statutory test, but the reality is, figures tell us now that they are very mm. extreme circumstances in which, at that stage of a pregnancy, a woman would seek abortion. And I think that's where you also have to say. This is where, actually, you do have to trust women. Women are quite capable of making this decision with all the value judgments mm. that go with it, the emotions that go with it, all the considerations they have to well, take into account. They're quite capable of making With that, that being said, do you expect that per capita there will be an increase in the number of abortions in New Zealand? No, I don't expect that. What I do think we will see is that um, abortions will, on average, happen earlier in pregnancies in New Zealand than is currently the case. Why ban protesters from outside medical centres? Well, there's not a ban on protesters. What, we've, what we have put in the proposed bill is the ability on a case-by-case, abortion-clinic-by-abortion-clinic basis, um, reserve the right to regulate to prevent um, 
uh, women and the health practitioners from being harassed and intimidated and, and abused by people who would you know, see it as an opportunity to protest. Isn't that a prevention of speech? Don't they have the right to protest? Uh, look, they can express their views, they can do whatever they like, and they can do it 150 metres away from a clinic, um, but they should not be intimidating and harassing people who are already under immense stress at the time anyway. Have you done the numbers? Uh, look, I, I don't have precise numbers, um, but what I do know is from the consultations that I've had, and including with um, the National Party, is... Uh, I think we've got a good chance mm. of getting a majority on Thursday. Um, and I hope we do, because I think if the bill passes its first reading, gets to a select committee, uh, that's the opportunity for a fulsome public debate and examination of the proposed law, and then we can what, come back to it in the subsequent readings. What Labour MPs do you expect will not vote for this or will abstain? Well, it's not for me to name names, and this is a conscience issue. MPs will make up their own minds. There will be Labour MPs who will vote mm. against this. I understand that. But there are national MPs who will vote for it. Um, what what Labour MPs have told you they'll vote against it? Look, it's not for me to disclose um, those sorts of details. MPs are quite capable mm -hmm. of uh, voting the way they wish and expressing their view publicly the way they wish to do so. All right, thank you for your time this evening, Justice Minister Andrew Little. We will stay with the abortion issue after the break. I'll be talking to women from both sides of the debate. A little later, an interview with Australia's first Indigenous Affairs Minister, who also happens to be the first ever Aboriginal person to hold the job. And Shane Jones is also up tonight. He's been talking to ANZ Bank about its opposition to holding more capital here. And he's taking their threats very seriously. The target will be the farming community. I think John Key and uh, Shane Elliott are good for their threat. No, my hi to my, welcome back to Q&A. We're staying with the reform of abortion law announced today. Watching our interview with Justice Minister Andrew Little were Kate Cormack, the spokeswoman for Voice for Life, and in Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington, Terry Balamak, President of Abortion Rights Aotearoa. Tēnā kōrua, welcome to Q&A. Terry, I'll start with you. Is this what you wanted? It's a lot of what we wanted. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot that's good in this draft bill. Um, there... It's good because it gives women the opportunity to take control of their own lives and to feel safe doing so. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot here to like. What don't you like? Well, obviously, it's not ideal that we have the limitation at 20 weeks. What uh, Alrans and family planning and Afghans were all hoping to see something more like Model A, because Model A really fulfills the promise of treating abortion care just like every other kind of health care. Um, so that's a little bit disappointing, but I understand why the government had to go that way. Kate, what do you think of the proposal? Absolutely disturbing. Uh, we're talking about abortion up to birth uh, for grounds of well-being after 20 weeks, which effectively means abortion on demand. I, is, that, is that right? I mean, it's not abortion on demand. You, you have to go through a procedure with, with medical professionals who are subject to all sorts of professional with standards. one abortionist who will be the abortionist performing your abortion and the grounds on which he has to approve, are, one of them will be well-being, which is a very um, generic term, which I don't see how they would actually refuse a woman. The vast majority of abortions in New Zealand are before that 22-week stage. The vast majority. Do you expect that to change? 
Yes, of course. Uh, the reason that the vast majority are before then is because abortion is currently in the Crimes Act and it recognises that abortion ends the life of another human being. Uh, so you remove that and we will have an increase in late-term abortion. I found what um, Justice Minister Andrew Little was saying was extremely um, misleading to the public. There have actually been over 800 late-term abortions in New Zealand in the last 10 years for non-medically related reasons. Ter Terry, what, is, what are your reactions to those comments? Because I asked the Justice Minister Andrew Little about late-term abortions and what sort of protections and provisions would be in place under this proposal. Yeah, that, a lot of that um, I really disagree with. It doesn't sound true. Uh, in the first place, the, when an abortion is performed is not really driven so much by whether it's in the Crimes Act or not, except to the extent that the fact that it's in the Crimes Act means more hoops to jump through, so it tends to be later as a result. As far as, as I, think, I think Minister Little got it absolutely right when he said abortions up to birth is ridiculous. It's, if, what they, when a, a fetus exits a womb, that's called in, in a viable state. That is called birth. Um, as far as, uh, I don't know well, where Kate is getting her 800. Um, I would really like to see that data because um, my understanding is that you, is my understanding is that uh, abortions that occur after 20 weeks or so are for medical reasons. Yeah, the, the numbers, the, I'm just gonna step in here. The numbers that I have suggest that less than 1% of abortions occur after mm -hmm. the 22 week mm -hmm. marker. But, but let me ask this of you, Terry. That's correct. You, if, if, if women no longer have to jump through the hoops that are associated with abortion being in the Crimes Act, do you expect mm -hmm. the number of abortions per capita in New Zealand to increase? I don't expect the number of per capita of, of abortions to increase. What we've seen over the past few years is a decrease in the number of abortions, and that's been largely due to the uptake of long-acting reversible contraception. One thing that we might see, but we won't see it immediately, <clears throat> is the increased availability, increased accessibility of abortion for people out in rural areas, because right now they're very ill-served. It's a real equity issue that you know people who are in urban areas can get the health care they need without too much trouble. But if you're in a rural area, it's going to cost a lot more in terms of time and money. And you know, if right. we see an uptick there, that's probably <clears throat> a good from an equity standpoint. Kate, do you believe in contraception? Excuse me? Do you believe in contraception? Personally, I'm not sure how that's relevant to talking about a bill that's being proposed by Jacinda Ardern and the Labor I'm, government I'm just, I'm, about abortion up to birth I'm just, on no, demand. I'm, no, no, the reason, no, no. I, the reason I ask, stick with Why? me. The reason I ask is because I, I wonder what other alternatives are available for lowering the rates of abortions in New Zealand because I think most people would agree we want to have lower rates of abortions in New Zealand. Of course we would. So, so would why you like we to see more effective contraceptive programs? I'm not sure how that's relevant to discussing this bill by Labour. Well, if we had more effective contraceptive programs, we wouldn't need as many that's, abortions. That's, that's actually incorrect. incorrect. A lot of women who seek an abortion were <laughs> using contraception at the time. So that insinuation is quite, again, not relevant. Actually, that's not what we found. Uh, there, was a, a, there was a study in Colorado uh, in which... 50, I, I forget the number of people, I think around 500 people were given whatever kind of contraception their hearts desired, absolutely free. And among that group of people, very few of them got 
received abortion care. They, the, it was like, yeah, mm. it, it. Can I just yeah. say, if, yeah. a, if abortion is health care, then why are you spending this time talking about decreasing it? If abortion is a, a good thing for women to have and it doesn't matter. I don't think anyone is suggesting it's a good thing for, but for women But we take it have. seriously. We take the numbers seriously because it ends human mm. life. So we've had over half a million legal abortions in New Zealand in the last 40 years. I thought they How were illegal. They are not illegal. Under this is part act. of the issue that the public are being misled. Let, let me ask you it this, It is completely Kate. legal to have an abortion in New Zealand. What do you think about about protesters and and the fact that under these proposals protesters won't be allowed within 150 meters of medical clinics where this is happening yes obviously that's a concerning part of what they're raising in the bill uh, do you protest yes i myself do protest but i would um describe it as we are there as an outreach outside an abortion facility mm. in my local community in my at my local hospital each thursday an outreach an outreach so we're there to offer help hope often the women that we speak to we're not given the right information we're not given um, offers of support or holistic wraparound support what, what, more, what more can you do to push back against these proposals then and with the bill yeah, coming? yeah. And, and pushing as this as this proposal moves forward what more will you do to, to push back against it? We will be a loud voice for the voiceless and the vulnerable New Zealanders. This is a dangerous bill that, if it's introduced in New Zealand, um, will be catastrophic. It will completely change the fabric of our society. We're talking about treating human life as though it's nothing more than removing a wisdom tooth. This is, this is, not going to, this is counterproductive to women's health and it's counterproductive to our maternal care. Terry, do you accept that this is counterproductive to women's health? Entirely not. Of course <laughs> no, not. Mm. No, it's, you know, women have a right to make decisions about their own lives and their own bodies and their own health. Then what and was wrong with her taking, having an abortion one week before she is due to give birth? Because you guys are talking about that like it's somehow no, a bad no, that's, thing. No, 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 that's, yeah, that's, no, 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 that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm just stepping really? here. Look, yeah, one, yeah. One, yeah. Yes, less good. than 1% of abortions currently in New Zealand happened after the 22-week gestational and, and mark. A, and they're, and they're and vastly more likely to be with women who, who have fetuses with, with a poor diagnosis Mm -hmm. than they are with someone who's simply changed their like A poor medical diet a poor medical like diagnosis. These are people who in some cases disability may have discrimination. Uh, okay. Okay, that, that may be your opinion, but I think it's Absolutely unfair to is. mischaracterize it. Uh, um, a desire for people to be having abortions. If this isn't right abortion up to birth that's being proposed by Jacinda Ardern and the Labour government, then why does the bill not state that? Why does the bill not prevent abortion up to birth? Why isn't it stop abortion at 30 weeks? I, I think There's I can answer that. There's nothing like that being mm. proposed in this. Terry, we'll I, give you the last yeah. word, then we have to keep moving. Okay, uh, yeah, I think I can answer that. Uh, the reason that the bill doesn't do that is because the people who wrote it trust women to decide for themselves whether and when to become a parent. Look, we have to keep moving, but thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you. Kate Cormack and Terry <laughs> Ballamack. I'm sure uh, these will not be the last interviews you'll be doing over the next days and weeks. We really appreciate it. Thank Let's you. see what Jenny has planned for us on tonight. Thanks, Jack. Tonight we're in Hong Kong as police and anti-government protesters clash in another night of chaos. Concerns there'll be a repeat of the Fox River landfill disaster as dozens of dumps are threatened by coastal erosion. A wintry blast dumps snow across the South Island, a long weekend for some but a headache for others. 
Plus, the flying Frenchman's adrenaline-filled ride across the English Channel. Join us for all that and tomorrow's weather at 10.25. Kia ora, Jenny. Can't wait for it. Hey, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on our Facebook page or email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. And don't forget the famous Q&A podcast. Everybody listening to it, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Shane Jones is up next. What did he say to the head of ANZ? And later, the chaos and confusion of Brexit. A visiting UK Labour MP talks about the chances of a second referendum. And Australia's Minister for Indigenous Affairs, the first Aboriginal person to hold that job. How will he deal with Pauline Hanson? Pauline, I get on well with, and we've had some really good discussions. Tēnā koutou, welcome back. ANZ has threatened to review its New Zealand operations if our Reserve Bank pursues its plans to require banks to hold more capital here. All four Australian banks are in a huff over the proposal. Each has warned that any changes will mean higher interest rates for borrowers and lower rates for savers. So with that in mind, Infrastructure Minister Shane Jones met with ANZ Chief Executive Shane Elliott in Melbourne. Jones was in town to meet leaders in Australia's construction industry. But after his meeting with the bank, I asked the minister whether he thought the ANZ boss is being serious in his threats. The Aussie-owned banks earn huge returns in terms of uh, return on investment, return mm. on equity, up to 18%. American banks hardly crack 10%. European banks are below that. So whether or not they feel happy with that outcome whenever it comes through from the Reserve Bank, we cannot escape the fact that $2 billion was repatriated by the ANZ and if there's a case for them to bolster their balance sheet, they probably won't like it. However, that's the Reserve Bank uh, direction of travel, and he's a tough individual, is our Adrian Orr. So did you get any specific commitments from Shane Elliott? We both agreed that there has to be more innovation and opportunity for the banks to collaborate and generate solutions in regional New Zealand so we don't see a wholesale withdrawal of services. He advised me that they've tried that in Australia, but because of competition laws, it's not possible. Um, I expressed a huge concern that uh, the comments from the ANZ Bank in terms of rural New Zealand um, uh, filled people with angst. And look, I have no idea whether or not they're going to withdraw, but they have a profound social licence. The ANZ Bank bought the National Bank. The National mm. Bank actually had a lot of detritus in it, and um, I'm sure that they've worked that through. But um, these, um, th these threats in the newspaper, I don't know if it's bluff or bluster, it's very, very unsettling. Come on, you're a poker player. You must have an idea whether it's bluff or bluster. Oh, no, I've got no doubt in my mind that um, they're going to fight um, the, our Reserve Bank to the nth degree. But are I they do... really going to pull out of rural New Zealand? Well, I, I suspect that um, if they want to maintain their social licence, you can't send mm. vast swathes of the agribusiness sector in rural New Zealand to the wall. I mean, who's going to buy such so assets? So you think they're bluffing? Well, I think that the Aussie banks have become very, very addicted to super profits out of New mm. Zealand, and we want some more insurance. We want a gr greater level of assurance. And uh, Shane said to me, hey, mate, someone's going to have to pay for this. And who's going to pay for it? Well, that's the point. Do they either um, trim their expectations so they're more in line with international bankers? Mm. International bankers are down at 10 or 12%. I don't see why they should continue to profit at a level of 18%. Yeah, but, but what can you, as a government 
do? Well, the system is such that um, Adrian Orr is our governor, and um, I, I don't think it's going to be very easy for anyone to, uh, to change uh, his mind. He's got all the independent mm. powers. There's an arguable case as to whether or not uh, this is actual monetary policy, but the law is the law. And in, in, in terms of um, the bankers, however, one thing I did say is that the board and the advisers around the ANZ bankers looking like a colony of National Party refugees and next year is an election. And I'm deeply concerned that the politics associated with the next election don't start playing out in the ANZ uh, board. What did Shane Elliott say to that? Uh, well, he took it on board. Uh, they've got various advisers there sort of wandering around like National Party nightingales. Uh, endeavouring to uh, improve the ability of ANZ to recover its reputation. But at the end of the day, this is big money, big egos, big incentive packages, and I'm not going to keep quiet on behalf of rural uh, New Zealand if uh, the Aussie banks aren't going to back down. All right, you've had a chance to speak with them, though. I want to be 100% clear. Do you think ANZ is bluffing when it comes to those threats about pulling out their business from New Zealand if those capital requirements go through? Oh, now, if those capital requirements go through, my interpretation of Mr Elliott is that they will significantly change their model of operation in New Zealand. And I think what John Key said, that the target will be the farming community, I think John Key and uh, Shane Elliott are good for their threat. I just want to be really clear, though. It is your expectation that if the capital requirements changes go through, rural lenders will increase their expenses and costs in New Zealand? Uh, let me absolutely be clear about this. After the meeting with Shane Elliott, the ANZ CEO, I've, gone, I've not got a sliver of doubt in my mind that they are not going to absorb these costs. They are going to look to pass them on. I'm uh, not happy about that, but at the end of the day, that's between the governor of our Reserve Bank and them, and I think that will do inordinate damage to the brand and the social licence of ANZ Bank, and I think it will bring a great deal of taint mm. to the New Zealand grandees who sit on that board. Does the Reserve Bank need to back off a little bit here? Should they meet the Australian banks halfway? Well, now what Grant Robertson said, and I agree, uh, people need to stop the bluff and uh, the, the, the bluff and the bluster and bluff and um, have a mature grown-up conversation so I couldn't have put it better myself. But what does that mean? That is, that's bluff and bluster itself. Do you think, yes or no, that the Reserve Bank should peg back these capital requirements? No, look, I don't want to start issuing instructions and it's wrong to do that to the Governor, but the Governor fully understands that uh, if you make any changes about where the banks are likely to go in regional New Zealand, it's not only the quantum, but it's the, over what period of time do, does this cost structure change? And I'm, I'm quite sure that the Governor of the Reserve Bank already knows that. What do you think is the solution for the situation at Ihumatau? Well, I mean, it's now Tainui business. I think people need to bear in mind that a lot of the forces behind the Seoul movement uh, they have no interest in stabilising uh, Māori leadership or stabilising the situation there. But I'd say to the protesters, I do not believe that they have stated their case. They've plucked words out of the air that the whole place is wahitapu. Absolute nonsense. You don't grow wheat in the old days and kai more recently on wahitapu. So that doesn't have any wash with me. But I would, I would suggest that whatever forces are supporting the occupation, they want it to be protracted. But now that the Māori king is involved, I'm very confident that we'll see uh, a higher level of certainty 
I mean, the notion that you um, prohibit any development mm. on this farm and, and, and say that has a higher value than housing, I think that's a debatable point, and I happen to think it's nonsense. So this notion that you can run around prohibiting things just because you don't like development, I don't get that, especially when the people of Ihumatau are already backing housing developments on the other side of the road. Yes, I've always smelt a rat here. Should the government buy the land? No, 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 no. The government's not in a position to reopen any Treaty of Waitangi settlements. But if this These is done independently, if the government said we will buy this land, we won't re-gift it to any iwi, we'll set this up as a, as a reserve of national significance. Well, at the moment, the uh, Māori King and his advisers and um, the Freedom Campers from the Soul Movement and the local hapu, they're all having a big hui at hopu hopu, so I'll leave it with them. I would have thought that they're more than capable of sorting it out rather than dipping into the crown balance sheet. We should be building houses to um, offer accommodation for the whānau rather than uh, saying that uh, a scattered number of stones on an, old, uh, on an old cow farm have greater significance for Māori than building houses and keeping the tamariki warm mm -hmm. and in a safe environment. That is Shane Jones speaking just a few hours ago. I'm speaking to an MP from the UK Labour Party after the break. October 31st is, of course, the deadline for Britain's divorce from the EU. Can a no-deal Brexit be avoided? Is a second referendum possible? That's next. Kia ora, welcome back. With D-Day looming, it's still not clear whether the UK's divorce from the EU will proceed with an orderly exit or a leap into a no-deal unknown. Some Remainers are even pinning their hopes on a second referendum. Fresh from the Brexit chaos is my next guest, Emily Thornbury. She's a UK Labour MP and their Shadow Foreign Secretary. And she's in Aotearoa to visit her Labour counterparts here. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Thank you very much. And I'm very pleased to be on the other side of the world, Brexit at the moment. Yes, what a fascinating time <laughs> at the moment in the UK. What does Britain's new Prime Minister mean for this Brexit process? Well... It's not known, and I think it's not known because he doesn't know. I don't think he necessarily has a particularly clear plan, and the trouble is he has a kind of a bit of a proven record of being a liar. So even when he says he's going to do something, nobody necessarily believes that he's mm -hmm. going to. But I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that when he says do or die, we're going to leave by the 31st of October, um, that he does seem to mean it. it uh, on the basis of the people that he's got employed now in number 10, people he's got in the in the cabinet it looks like he's absolutely determined to crash britain out of the european union without a deal with our nearest trading neighbors and hope that things will be all right so what's labor's plan so our plan is that we will do anything and everything to stop that you know because we think that it is is profoundly anti-democratic actually you know okay so the referendum said that we were to leave but that was by a slender majority and it was three years ago and we really don't think people voted for this we don't think that people voted for no deal which will mean you know no insulin it may mean shortages of cancer drugs mm. it'll mean shortages of food but, but that's you know, because you're you a remainer that's what people voted so for. you're saying that the message during the campaign during the brexit referendum campaign was misleading Oh, yeah, of course it was. I mean, people were promised 101 different things. So would you be making the same argument for a second referendum if Britain had voted to remain? 
I think that the truth is, is that when, when Britain voted to leave, I woke up the next morning feeling mm. really low. I didn't think it was a good idea. I didn't want us to leave. But in the end, I'm a Democrat. I'm a public servant. I do as I'm told. And, and for two and a half years, three years, we have been trying to leave. Mm. But what the Labour Party has said is that we have to leave in such a way that we look after jobs and the economy. So what the Conservatives kept coming back with were things that we couldn't agree to. But unfortunately, we've now run out of time, we've run out of goodwill, and we've basically either got a choice of, of a, of a no-deal Brexit, which is not good for jobs and the economy or the country, mm. or, or remain. But you see my point, though. There will be critics of this... Of this whole situation and process yeah. who say that the Remainers are insisting upon a second referendum simply because they didn't get the result they wanted. And if, with all of this campaigning, misleading as it may have been, mm. if the referendum result had gone the other way, they wouldn't be out here campaigning for a second referendum because you were misled in the first one. Yeah, but you know what? I think that if a statesperson had been in charge after the referendum, they would mm. have said 52-48 actually says something by itself, which is that, yes, we have to leave. That keeps the 52% happy, but that we keep the 48% happy by not going very far. But instead, we had a Prime Minister who took... There's lots of different mm. ways to leave mm. the European Union and the ways in which we continue to have a relationship, but took the most extreme mm. version of leaving the European Union and, of course, therefore alienated all these other people. This wasn't the way to keep the country together. So... Three years on, where are we? We're only left mm. with the two extremes. No, there doesn't seem to be any middle ground left, which is why we think we need to just ask the people, did you vote for this? Because, do you know, mm. if you voted for it, then fine, but, but, then but fine, we Corbyn will leave. Would be saying as well? Yes. So, so Jeremy Corbyn would only be saying this if it was, a, if it was absolutely going to be a no-deal Brexit, though, right? You, you want a referendum either way. So even, if, even if there's a deal, you want to put that deal to a referendum, but Jeremy Corbyn wants no. to put the, the no deal, either no deal, no deal, go to a referendum, but if there's a deal, he's not concerned. So Labour's policy is that any deal that a Conservative government comes up with or no deal should be put back to the people in a referendum and Labour will campaign to remain because we don't think that the deal that they've come up with or any deal they're likely to come mm. up with will be one that we can agree to and we certainly don't agree with no deal. And we think that three years on, we should say to the public, if you agree to this, then fine, we will go ahead with it, but we need to check with you because mm -hmm. this is such a long way away from what so many people thought they were going to get. Is Jeremy Corbyn the, the right person to be leading Labour through this period? Of course. I mean, Jeremy has been, you, you know, has been overwhelmingly elected by the membership of the Labour Party twice. And in 2017, when so many naysayers said that he wasn't electable, we increased our vote, uh, the Labour vote, by a bigger proportion than we ever have done since 1945. And what would happen if there was a general election today? Jeremy, I think that Labour needs to be completely clear about its position. We need to be clear that we need to be not standing in the middle of the road. We need to be quite clear, not talking mm. about something else. Mm. If there's a general election, then it will be about Brexit, and we need to be clear about that. And in my view, what we need to be doing is we need to be saying that we should be campaigning to remain that we need to remain mm. in the European Union because the deal that the British public is being offered, the no deal or the nonsense that the Tories are putting forward is not what is good enough for them and is not what they voted for. A lot of people think that you would be a, a, better, a better messenger if that were the case than your leader. Do you, do you think that's a job you'd like one day? I think that the job of the Foreign Secretary is a 
would be an enormous honour mm. and actually I would be part of a team of, of, mess of messengers and I think that... What about Labour leader? That, sorry? What about Labour leader? No, no, so I think that the point is is that I'm focusing mm. on being the next Foreign Secretary and I think that if I was to be given that job it would be an enormous honour. I think there's a great deal of work that we need to do as a country working with our friends in New Zealand, Australia, around the world, working multilaterally at a time of such enormous challenge and I think that... I think the world misses Britain. I think that we have not been playing an active part over the last few years and I would love the honour of being the Foreign Secretary and being able to be responsible for Britain being able to hold its head up high the, again. There are a lot of concerns, particularly in, in New Zealand business communities but particularly amongst New Zealand exporters about what is going to happen come October 31st. Yes. Do you have any idea what life is going to be like for Kiwi exporters? Well, I'm afraid that anybody who tells you what is going to happen in Britain in the next few months, if they tell you they know, I'm afraid they're lying, because nobody really knows, because our Prime Minister doesn't know. You know, I think we have to begin with that, but I think that if we end up on the 31st of October with no deal, there will be chaos in Britain, I'm afraid to say, and it will take a good few months, possibly years, for Britain to get out of that chaos and for us to be able to, 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 you know, to essentially sort mm. ourselves out. Uh, clearly, we have been working with New, with New Zealand on the, along the possibility of being able to have a new trade deal with New Zealand, mm. and we would greatly appreciate being able to negotiate something, but we will be and continue to be distracted by Brexit and a no-deal Brexit, I'm afraid, or... or you know, all bets are off if we have a no-deal Brexit. Well, on that cheery note. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is why I'm on oh, the other side of the world oh. for a few weeks, you thank know. You, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And to you and all of your country folk, good luck thank in sorting you. something out over thank the next you. few months. Stay with us. An interview with the Minister for Indigenous Australians after the break. He's the first Aboriginal person to hold that role. Can he convince his Conservative colleagues to bring about real change for his people? Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Ken Wyatt is a man of firsts. The first Aboriginal person to be a Cabinet Minister, the first to be a Minister for Indigenous Affairs. But can he achieve what politicians before him have not? That is, to have his people recognised in Australia's constitution, their voice permanently enshrined in Parliament. Ken Wyatt sat down with One News Australian correspondent Ryan Boswell to explain how he hoped to rally the country behind him. An anomaly in Australian politics. What I want is recognition that strengthens this nation. Ken Wyatt, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, the first who is himself Indigenous, is carrying the weight of a people on his shoulders. Sworn into the National Liberal Coalition this year, he's wearing a cloak made from kangaroo skin, gifted to him by his tribe. You carry a great deal of pride when you wear something like that, I would imagine. Oh, you do? Uh, because it's given to you by your elders. And when they give it to you, it has meaning and it's significant. His office in Canberra full of treasures, each with a story to remind him of why he's here. This painting by his sister sits pride of place. This one's about constitutional recognition, the mainstream communities and then the Indigenous communities, but coming together with a common purpose. 
Elected to the Hasluck seat in the West in 2010, he became the first Indigenous person in the House of Representatives. He is the first to serve as a government minister too, and the first appointed to Cabinet where the big decisions are made. Ken Wyatt quick to convince Prime Minister Scott Morrison to put Australia's first people at the front of minds. A referendum will be held in this term of Parliament, asking whether Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders should be recognised in Australia's founding document. Well, there's been conversations, but sometimes you can have a conversation that is one way, where you tell people what they need, you tell people what you're going to put into place. A two-way conversation where you do it together is a very different approach. The battle is big. Over the next 18 months, officials will be sent across the country to talk to the hundreds of different tribes, each with its own mix of cultures, customs and languages. <laughs> then a decision has to be made over what new word should be used to change the constitution. He says that will be key to get the country on board. How ridiculous is that? One Nation leader Pauline Hanson describes herself as Indigenous, arguing she too was born here. She says the Constitution is supposed to unite, not divide. Pauline I get on well with and we've had some really good discussions. We both agree to disagree on some issues and I jokingly uh, said to her on the way out, looks like I'm going to have to do some sweet talking to convince you and she said, all you have to do is be honest with me. And I, I like that in people. Ken Wyatt has looked to Aotearoa for leadership on Indigenous rights, having attended conferences at Marae. He wants a bilateral agreement so knowledge can be shared. But New Zealand has been tremendous at being at the forefront of the way it takes its First Nations people, embraces uh, them, but embraces language. I, I love the New Zealand national anthem because you've got the duality of both, uh, both cultures in the broadest context of cultures and it sounds great and then you watch when we play you in rugby union, the haka uh, and your Prime Minister's leadership has been tremendous. He thought New Zealand's Treaty of Waitangi signed between Māori and the Crown in 1840 could guide debate in Australia but has since ruled that out. Well, when I was young, I was envious of the Treaty of Watangi because I thought that was the total solution. And I've always thought treaties gave you absolute certainty, but over a period of time in watching what happens uh, in another country, you learn a number of uh, elements that are perfect, but you also learn that treaties aren't watertight. In Australia, the disparities are glaringly obvious. Because of colonisation, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have experienced extreme hardship. There's been the loss of traditional culture. Land has been stolen, children too taken by force from their loved ones, and they've been denied basic human rights, access to health, housing, education and employment. I will bring with it a cultural perspective. So that when we have discussions, I'll be asking the question of, so how do we hear the voices of people in community? How do we hear what's being said at the regional level? Because if we operate at the national level and you have it top down, then the programs won't stay in place. And what I want to do is have a partnership in which we develop things together. It is owned 
and then the community run it. There have been five inquiries into Indigenous rights. The latest, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, called for a First Nations voice in the Constitution and a process of agreement-making and truth-telling. How long do you think it will be before Indigenous Australians are on equal footing with white Australia? I hope we make significant progress to moving the next generation of young people that come behind us into better positioning than what we were. It's the same as my parents and grandparents. I'm in a better position than they ever were at this age. So Australia is maturing. But the gap of equity is still problematic. What an interesting man. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching. Nga mihi kia koutou mō ngā karere. That means thanks for your messages. Sorry we didn't get to your feedback. It's my fault. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey tērā wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.